I think we're live. This is Journeys in Podcasting. My name is Chris Davis. I'm in Bogota, Colombia. And today we're going to be talking to Dr. Robert Summer um, about behavioral basis of, of design, particularly in the design of learning spaces. And how are you, Dr. Summer? Uh, where, where are you talking to us from? I'm talking to you from Davis, California, where I've lived for the past uh, 48 years. And as far as what I see from the UC Davis website, you have worn many hats, uh, taught in, across multiple disciplines, chaired several departments, uh, and we won't even get into um, the body of work that you've done. We'll be talking about one small segment of it today, but there are 15 books, I believe, uh, 660 uh, published articles, as well as a, a wealth of paintings on mushrooms of uh, the northwestern United States. Um, I hope I'm not missing anything. It, I, I pulled you up on Wikipedia um, last night, and this quote I, I thought was just amazing. It says, men will adapt to hydrocarbons in the air, detergents in the water, crime in the streets, and crowded recreational areas. Good design becomes a meaningless tautology if we consider that man will be reshaped to fit whatever environment he creates. The long-range question is not so much what sort of environment we want, but what sort of man we want. And so what we hope to do is not just talk about, um, we'll, we'll try to carry this into the classroom environment and talk about what kind of students and thinkers we, we want to create with the learning spaces we design. Sure. And that was written at a time when sexism wasn't uh, really considered an issue. So things were man uh, instead of human. Now I would, I would phrase it differently. Well, and being Wikipedia, I think we can get in there and probably uh, maybe we can actually change that <laughs> um, since it's crowdsourced. Um, okay, so let's jump straight in. Um, when I uh, was looking at your different, I mean, I, I read the book Personal Space, and this is what really drew me to you. And this came to me through doing some just basic research on learning spaces, looking at a lot of the Steelcase literature. They have their white papers. And in one of their white papers, uh, you were extensively referenced as well as um, Edward Hall, in, in the hidden dimension. And so I picked up both of these books and read them uh, over about six weeks. And uh, this one in particular re really struck me as useful and um, critically recent in, in the way you talk about learning spaces. And I'm reading the 1969 version, the year I was born, I might add. Um, and, and you say there's also a 2006 uh, updated version. Right. So one of the things you write in your research, you say that um, some pupils might do best at single desks, others in work groups, and others in one-to-one um, -one -one arrangements. You seem to be calling for a design of both um, an internal learning need and for multiple forms of human interaction. Um, but for teachers and students to really take advantage of very designed spaces in their, in their learning environments, won't they need to define what their philosophies and their needs are for learning? How might we encourage both teachers and learners to, to explore this? Well, in many ways, what the, the, the kind of customization uh, that was talked about there is more relevant to the library uh, where a library can have uh, individual spaces, you know, carols uh, that are just for single learners and then they can have group rooms where people can actually talk, and then uh, they, they can have uh, group rooms which are silent. Uh, but uh, for uh, teachers, uh, the, I, the idea is that the classroom is not this kind of uh, single homogeneous space, but is many kind of uh, micro spaces. There are, spe there are parts of it that are near the windows uh, that'll be cooler in, you know, in the winter and hotter in the summer. Uh, there are uh, uh, places in the uh, classroom uh, which uh, will be near the heating uh, elements. Uh, and so uh, the, the idea is to encourage kind of an experimental uh, attitude in teachers and in students. Uh, I like to use an action research 
framework for that, but it, it isn't necessary. But the, but the idea is that teachers should encourage a kind of freedom of space uh, and uh, let students see uh, what, are the, what is the best area for them. Because it is possible to find privacy in, a, you know, in some parts of a classroom uh, and not in others. Uh, so this is the, the idea, it is uh, to use uh, Edward Hall's notion, is to make the silent language uh, visible, uh, to uh, 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 experiment uh, with different uh, arrangements in the room uh, and that assumes that the chairs are movable. <laughs> if they're not, then, then then you have a real problem. Except, other than uh, trying to get students to experiment with uh, sitting in different parts of the room and seeing how it makes them uh, feel. But this is also a way of kind of developing architectural sensitivity uh, to make people see the connection between uh, space. Uh, and uh, human behavior and human comfort. In that same article, you go on, and this kind of touches on uh, what you just said, is that you say that a classroom is not a single homogenous space cube. And what I'm thinking there is that, you know, we all think of as a classroom climate, but I think what you're describing is that a classroom is a series of microclimates, that rather than being a network of interconnected, varied microenvironments, the lighting is much better in one part of the room, as you, you just mentioned. It's cold over by the windows. It's too warm by the heating vent. The view of the blackboard differs dramatically from one part of the room because of the glare from the ceiling lights. Um, a few students have an outside view and other students don't. This really reminds me of a podcast I was listening to recently about urban environments and how we all live in the same city, and yet we all live in our own cities. We all create our own kind of appropriated version of the city. And then you mentioned the hidden dimension where Edward Hall talks about uh, the proxemics of human interaction, how a student on the first row of a classroom will be closer in, fo I think it's foveal vision, I hope I'm saying that correctly, foveal vision to the minutia of, of gesture and affect of the teacher. All this metadata of body language and the visible, visible cues of, of eye contact would come much closer into play. Um, and that, can... helps, that helps explain why there is much more interaction from students who sit up front rather than those who sit in the back. Uh, they, they're, they're actually seeing a different environment. Yeah, and so like I've, I've taught in, in workshop environments, particularly thinking in the Lucy Calkins uh, Teachers College approach, and you know they have programmed in the meeting area uh, you know, to bring students together into close proximity for the mini lesson. And then, you know, when students are at their desk, that's more of their laboratory time. Or as um, Thornburg talks about it in, he identifies four metaphors for human interaction in, in the classroom, that there's the campfire where you bring everyone together, the watering hole where small groups can interact, the cave where you can be by yourself and encapsulate your thoughts. And then he talks about this thing called life, and that's where the learning has to go somewhere, that you can be a publishing board, but it has to go from that. Um, you mentioned action research. How would you suggest um, studying this, this, um, this wide array of environmental factors, everything from lighting to the human interactions? Um, how, yeah. how would you survey that? Yeah, the idea is to make people self-conscious about what they're doing and why uh, they're doing it, uh, that uh, you treat uh, each interaction as an experiment, uh, but you want to learn something from it, uh, that uh, you want to uh, get uh, teachers and, uh, and students uh, to uh, change their locations and then discuss how this makes them feel and to reflect on what they did in each location. Uh, and uh, then the, the next step is to circulate the outcomes to other teachers and uh, students, uh, discuss uh, them at uh, meetings, staff meetings, other kind of meetings, uh, 
published them in educational magazines, journals, uh, and then at another level to give credit to teachers who do this kind of experimentation uh, that is meant to improve what they're doing and that the research is not something you know abstract and way out there, but is something intimately connected with what they're doing. So what we did last year, a couple of teachers and I, or a few teachers and I, start, started playing around with this idea of designing your classroom environment to explore pedagogy and to reflect on your own pedagogy, that the space itself would be you know, connected to the purpose of the learning in the room. And so what we did was we borrowed from uh, the D school uh, this idea of the design sprint where we ran teachers through an hour-long workshop where we talked about meaningful learning spaces, talked about how it reflects your pedagogy, and then we actually had them go through a series of, of sprints and prototypes of you know, what a classroom might look at. Meanwhile, teachers in their classrooms were actually physically creating different models and, and playing with different ways to arrange that. So then what students did at the same time uh, was during a fourth grade project, these are fourth graders, um, they took the diagrams and sketches that teachers had made of different classroom designs and they interviewed the teachers about those designs to try to unlock the meaning of those spaces. Then those kids went into Minecraft and redesigned their classroom spaces and however they dreamed it possible, thinking, I mean, kind of fantasy land, but thinking of all the different ways they would like the classroom to be. And so this was, I think, a good step in the right direction. Uh, I, I would definitely want to expand on this and make some things more explicit. Um, is this the kind of thing you're talking about? Uh, where have you seen this connection between both teachers and, and learners collaborating to define what kind of learning happens in, in their space? Yeah, well, I think the, you know, that you put your you know, finger on, the, the idea is communication uh, is that not only do they experiment, but then they talk about, uh, you know, what each, the effect of each uh, arrangement uh, that I know that having been a teacher for too long, uh, I realized that I didn't know uh, what the, that I'm up front and I have lots of space and freedom of space. I can walk around, uh, you know, uh, from one end to another. I, I, can, I have a desk up there that I can put things in uh, there. And the students have none of this. They're usually in fixed seats uh, and have to stay there. Uh, so I learned that I cannot predict what arrangements and what even what type of classrooms students will like uh, that they can tell me, uh, you know, what, what they like and, and how this room is affecting them. Uh, but it's very difficult for me with the freedom of space I have and with the constraints that they're under to the, for me to predict how, you know, uh, how they will respond. I've learned that some rooms that I liked and would request year after year to have my class in, uh, that the students didn't like that room at all. Uh, I also found that some rooms which I detested, uh, students liked, uh, and it was important uh, to uh, find you know, that out by directly questioning the students on their preferences rather than impose mine on theirs. Well, in, in this day and age where we talk about innovation and learning, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about with, with, with the turn of the century, well, now we're at 16 years into it, we're still calling it 21st century learning spaces, 21st century learning. Uh, ISTE is, is a giant uh, conference that has a kind of a, a standards that they put with technology, which has very much to do about human interaction and cognition and not so much about the tools. Um, and then I'm not sure if you're familiar with Henry Jenkins, who writes on the new literacies, uh, new ways to talk about the ways that we're engaging in these digital environments. To me, this is the perfect time to talk about learning space. Uh, I, I feel like it, it opens up this window into talking about much larger learning outcomes as opposed to the you know, single definable measurable outcomes that teachers are kind of trained to chase after and document. Um, you know, I think if you interview teachers about what their ideal learning space is, and this will come into discussion later when we talk about how you mentioned the research in your book, um, that 
they, many, many people have this idea of what they would like their learning space to be, but then there's the, the requirements put upon them by the structure and hierarchy, um, the rigidity of the school structure itself. Um, I don't really have a question. I think I just lost myself talking. So what I want to do is kind of feed this into your next part where you talk about empowerment to how um, awareness of environment can lead to student empowerment, not only of their space, but of their learning trajectory. You talk about um, the student's area of control as, as being very limited. In fact, only limited to their storage space, since even the surface of the desk is under the teacher's jurisdiction and cannot, for example, be too cluttered or messy at any time and must be cleaned off at the end of the day. Um, students affect their physical environment primarily through the use of it, the placement orientation of their bodies, the physical and social objects, um, the physical artifacts of the classroom are more are revealing of teachers' attitudes and institutional poli policies, kind of what I was just talking about, than a student's attitudes and behavior, which can be discerned by their, their statements, performance, and body language. A couple of days ago, I interviewed three of my nieces and nephews about their school lives in both junior high and high school, and I couldn't believe the ranges of agency uh, in control of their learning environments, mostly um, the extremes of what Ed Hall would have called the behavioral sink where there's a competition within the hierarchy of needs, territorialism, as you talk about, and dominance behavior manifested by both teachers and fellow students. Can you explain a little bit about this parallel between control of your learning space and control of your learning trajectory? Sure. Uh, that uh, uh, the one major sort of difference is between the lower grades uh, where students and a teacher will be in the same room the whole day and they can the, the teacher and the students can have much more control over their room they can hang drawings and you know and uh, display materials and the upper grades uh, especially uh, high school and, and even the upper levels of junior high, uh, where the cl the classroom changes, turns over uh, every fifty minutes, uh, and there there's almost not you know it would be a great imposition on the future uh, uh, users of that space if a teacher put up a lot of uh, displays on it and. Uh, the, the, the next uh, seven teachers in that room would have to uh, follow that. Uh, you know, would, ha would either have to take them down uh, and where would they put them, uh, etc. Et so uh, the, uh, the, the uh, way the one would frame uh, the issue uh, for the upper grades uh, is how you create a, a temporary occupancy uh, that suits the learning objectives uh, uh, in you know in, in that room. In the lower grades, uh, you can uh, do much more uh, because it's your room, your space. Uh, but that's that's your, that's really the teacher's notion. But by uh, involving the students in the planning. It then becomes a shared space, and I think that's the goal that uh, you're addressing, and, and I, I heartily second. You know, when we did a quick tech check last night, you mentioned that you had uh, spent some time teaching over in Estonia, but back yeah. when Estonia was, was part of the Soviet Union, and I'd ask you, did you run into, you know, this activity theory, which to me overlaps a lot with the way you talk about learning system. Um, you know, a lot of things in education to me, uh, it's sort of crippling because they just sort of jump from thing to thing, from method to method, so that it, it often does not become system, that, that things take time to become a part of that learning system. Uh, I've always taught in elementary, I've done some high school teaching and some junior high, but mostly I've been in elementary school for the 20 years I've been teaching. And um, I'm, I'm very attuned to this idea of, you know, when you move from teacher's classroom to teacher's classroom, the culture of learning, the system itself changes drastically. The way the teacher interacts in that space, the way the students feel comfortable in the space, the way they feel comfortable manipulating it, 
you know, do the kids even feel comfortable grabbing, uh, you know, stuff off the board and writing on the board? Or is that clearly teacher space? Um, I, I feel like these things are, are, are very important, especially when considering how much time those people spend together in that same space over an extended period of time. Is that kind of how you think about uh, space design and, and culture that things sort of have to develop in that in that space and form relationships over an extended period of time? Or when teachers only have the kids for one hour a day, can they come up with just mini systems that, that continue like that? Sure. Well, the, the, the uh, uh, what you want uh, is a system uh, that will suit, you know, the, the purposes, the, the length of time people are, are in that room. Uh, but uh, when, when we were in Estonia, there was a tradition that students did not ask questions in class. It just wasn't done. And uh, coming from a high interaction, you know, background, uh, that was very frustrating. Uh, but I got, you know, I, I just accepted uh, that there would be no questions in class. I tried, you know, it broke my heart not to be able to get anything. I would ask any comment. I, I'd say something that semi-controversial and got absolutely no response. But then after class, all these students would come up to talk about things. I just had to accept that part uh, of teaching there. Uh, that there would be virtually no class discussion. Uh, and uh, there, were, there were also interesting aspects uh, in Estonia uh, where some people would uh, want to talk English, others would want to talk Russian, other, uh, and, and the most difficult was Estonian. It was a language that, n that no one who was, you know, not born in Estonia could speak. Uh, it, it was really weird. Uh, my wife particularly tried to learn it, uh, but it, it was um, very hard. But, but the key point there is that you did not count on interaction uh, feedback loops, uh, you know, during the class hour. That was meant for kind of sit and listen uh, teaching, which is, uh, I found, you know, very frustrating, uh, but uh, that was the way the students were raised, and that was the way the school supported teaching. Uh, when we went back to Estonia some years later, uh, it had it was no longer part of the Soviet Union, uh, and things had loosened up, and there was much more discussion uh, there. So. You're absolutely right that the culture does, the outside culture does affect uh, the, what goes on in the classroom, you know, a, a great deal. Uh, uh, but uh, there can be cultural changes, too, uh, that, you know, that, that go in a different direction. Caught you all the way up until when you talked about going back to Estonia and how they were trying to change the learning system a bit more and, and yes. interact more. Um, having a similar experience uh, volunteering in Poland for a couple of years after the fall of the, the wall and when things right. opened up, um, you know, I was supposed to be teaching a course called English Conversation in a high school, and yet kids would come. I would walk in the room and everyone would stand up, you know, greet the teachers, sit down, and then they would wait for not their name but their number to be called in which they would stand up, you know, wait for a question to be posed on them, and then, you know, you mark them in the book. Of course, I didn't do any of this, but this is what the, what they were used to. That was the hierarchical system. And so, you know, interaction between the students and class was, you know, something totally secretive and, and against the rules, whatever. So this kind of come, this brings us to, you know, we're actually flowing straight through your research beautifully because this, this brings us to um, a gap that I think there is about... Um, the way that, that we're trained as teachers and, and the way that a lot of our schools perhaps don't have their mission or philosophy very well defined and that space arrangement can actually open that conversation. So you talk about the teacher's educational philosophy will be reflected in the layout of the classroom. The teacher should be able to justify the arrangement of desks and chairs on the basis of certain educational goals because the students have so little authority over the physical setting the layout and arrangement and decor of the room will be insufficient for revealing their attitudes and interests. Um, 
this connection between this this space as a grammar of an institution, this is the stuff of, of mission statements. Um, it makes me think that a lot of our institutions and maybe a lot of our educators, I know myself in the first years educating, I probably wouldn't have been able to define why I'm doing things. I just knew that certain things were working from tweaking them and trying them out. Um, teachers are trained to kind of hone in, as we mentioned, on this single measurable variable, um, which is probably more likely to resemble a kind of behavioral psychology black box input-output relationship. But I feel like what you're getting at is this idea of the larger learning outcomes, of this discussion around you know, why we're doing what we're doing, and this brings in all of those 21st century learning skills of collaboration, all of these soft skills that are so subjective and difficult to measure. And yet this is, you know, what I feel like we're supposed to be pushing in innovation of education. Um, but beyond the discussion, how, how would you recommend we proceed? Yeah, well, uh, uh, just changing what people are doing and then having them discuss, you know, how this has, you know, affected things. Uh, this is the action research uh, idea where you don't simply talk about, well, what if we move the chairs in a different way, uh, but rather uh, let's try it out uh, and uh, then talk about it. Uh, and then if we learn something interesting, then we write it up and then we publish it uh, and we go the whole way. Um, and uh, a lot of uh, what I had to do uh, in, in trying to get this framework uh, adopted uh, was change the credit system where teachers got credit for actually experimenting with what they were doing, changing. Uh, like uh, nowadays it would be going more online or something uh, and then uh, seeing how this affects uh, the uh, uh, how many people come to the uh, the the uh, session uh, how many people uh, uh, contact the instructor uh, if you know if the online system allows that uh, but it's too create more self-awareness, self-consciousness in the light of actually changing things around. And that's where the action research comes in, the action and then the, 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 the self, the reflection, uh, the self-consciousness uh, and uh, giving teachers credit when they actually do experiments uh, with classroom arrangements uh, instead of you know, one a group of uh, 30, uh, you have uh, uh, four groups of uh, seven or eight. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, then writing about that or, you know, or talking about that at a staff meeting. Uh, so uh, it's really, you know, uh, well, a lot of my articles and uh, you know, later on we'll go into the soft classroom uh, work, uh, dealt with this uh, where uh, we had done all these uh, studies of, uh, uh, you know, different types of classrooms. Uh, and uh, then finally, uh, we, well, we've, we first uh, got to the point of doing uh, kind of guerrilla experiments uh, where we actually went into classrooms on my campus and in, installed decorations on the walls. We took these drab institutional classrooms, and this is what they all were, uh, and we snuck in there after hours and put pictures on the wall, put plants uh, there. Uh, I actually have some uh, uh, pictures of this. Uh, let's see. Yeah. yeah, here, this was my, this was a student of mine, and we took this, you know, drab room, uh, and uh, uh, we installed pictures, uh, you know, on the walls, uh, and here we actually uh, put plants 
in these drab rooms. After can, you, can you hold those really high so we can see them? Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. This this was a you know a drab institutional room, and the student Linda Davis uh, went in. Uh, we, I went with her, and we put in plants and things and left them there uh, for a few days, and then did surveys of students, and uh, they all liked them. They all thought that this had been done by the institutional masters, uh, and and not by us. Uh, there and so uh, that that was you know one way of doing it. Uh, another way is just to just to survey as students and uh, all the surveys that had been done of classrooms at that era uh, were show that they were considered drab, colorless, and, you know, institutional, uh, and so. Uh, we finally, uh, after we, you know, demonstrated this over and over, uh, got permission uh, from the uh, campus and some financial support to change around, well, first one room, uh, and when that proved successful, then they popped for a lot more money, and we were able to uh, uh, improve the environment uh color, form, uh, uh, arrangement uh, in about uh, 12 lo very large classrooms. Uh, yeah. But uh, when we started, uh, the uh, this was the kind of typical kind of classroom uh, that we had. Uh, it was... Uh, Let's t talk about when it goes wrong and maybe a little bit about the, the user experience of, of taking data from the students. Um, I'm from Galveston, Texas, where we had multiple schools reconstructed and they were all built, I think, at the same time that you're talking about in your book of when you know schools were doubling as bomb shelters and things like that, where we had this completely open plan where a school was built like just a giant warehouse and classrooms were just open, and you could literally look across and see six other classrooms. Um, and, and it was pretty disastrous from what I understand, and that teachers didn't really change, as you mentioned in a couple of places in your book, teachers didn't really change the way they were doing things. It just created a kind of more chaotic environment. And then I went back and taught in my, in my district um, for a couple of years later after college, and, uh, and the same spaces that had been cut up into you know, temporary wall space, which, of course, the sound goes straight through. And at any given moment, of course, you can you have the auditory effect of seeing six classrooms, but, you know, you, you still have the, the wall and separation space. What I feel like the, the gap is, is that there is a giant discrepancy in kind of what we want our learning spaces to be. And yet, you write, as you write about space, I'm also thinking about hierarchy and political structure within schools. And that teachers, you know, may want to act on all of these, you know, incredible infinitesimal uh, things they see that learning could be. But when it comes down to it, they have to kind of stick between, you know, certain guidelines of what the school dictates. How would you, how have you approached or how do you feel like this affects political structure that, you know, to, to rearrange a classroom can be can be a statement? You know, I, I got in trouble a couple of times for for some wild classroom designs, it, it can be a very controversial thing. H how have you approached that? It, it can be very controversial, uh, but where you can demonstrate that there are positive effects and, you know, get the, get the, you know, the results out. Uh, this is where the action research, you know, comes in uh, and you actually, you know, demonstrate that the learning you know, even though when the uh, principal passes by and sees, you know, people wandering around, you know, it doesn't look organized. But if you can then demonstrate that the grades did not go down and, in fact, maybe even went up and uh, there were fewer suspensions or, you know, disciplinary actions, then uh, you have a good uh, defense against uh, any kind of uh, imposition. Uh, uh, we, when we did the uh, 
soft classroom. Uh, this was uh, an example of a class meeting in it. Uh, you know, actually more students than really belonged in that room. Uh, and uh, but you know, a principal going by there and comparing this to students sitting in straight row seats uh, is going to worry what's going on there. Uh, and uh, 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 but then if you can demonstrate that the grades, uh, you know, didn't suffer and, uh, you know, were, were good, you know, you, you have a good defense that you didn't have before. I think what I'm concerned is more like I think if you walk through the, the places that I've taught, at least um, in elementary schools, you would never find straight row seating. Almost doesn't exist. Right. I would start yeah. the year having the kids sit two by twos and we would really focus yeah. on. But if you go to fourth grade, fourth grade or fifth grade, you would find straight row seats. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I guess my, my other fear is, like you do mention the book, that, the, that you, you can't deny that there is, is a direct effect on human interaction when you do change the space. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, what I'm kind of worried about is that human concern of the reappropriated space where we put the kids in four tops at workbenches, and yet the teachers are still trying to address the kids from the blackboard or yeah. from the whiteboard, and the kids are all sort of staring at each other. Um, yeah. You know, so, so it's never really made explicit or never really sinking in. The teachers never quite grok. Now, why are we having the kids sit at, at four tops? Well, yeah, it's because you're more likely to see the adjacent possible. You're more likely to feel stimulus from the person in front of you. And we see this, like, social interaction around learning. And yet I feel like what's happening a lot, and I, I spent the last five years working in 18 different classrooms throughout the year, a lot of times I feel like um, – you know, when it's time to address the whole class, I, I think the appropriate thing would be to do is to get everyone into that campfire mode where everyone's in close proximity and it's appropriate to be talking face to face as opposed to sending them all back to their desk and then trying to teach from the board when everybody's sitting looking at each other it can be kind of a, a chaotic uh, dissonance going on there. Um, you mentioned uh, in, in personal space, we talked about this idea of the, the, the human's sink and when the hierarchy of needs is threatened, you know, dominance behavior can appear, territoriality. And as I interviewed my, my um, nieces and nephews, you know, they talked about uh, uh, this exact same behavior, the same things you described in your book they were talking about, about how kids would walk into a room and there'd be a competition uh, sometimes physical of, you know, getting this particular seat and then saving the seats around it for your friends. Of course, everyone remembers this from their junior high, high school experience, I think. At the same time, their most positive moments that they described. And when they talked about loving school the most, almost all of them were about working in these collaborative environments in a productive atmosphere. When they had a chance to interact with their peers, but it was productive, not just interacting for interaction's sake, but when they're actually producing something together. All three of them were, you know, this was the most positive part of the day. And that's where I wonder, like, in this environmental, environmental awareness that you speak of, um, did you include with that this idea of working collaboratively, this idea of a distributed cognition, or I think in, in Henry Jenkins' terms, he calls it collective intelligence, the ability to create something together as a group? Yeah, well, the most Produ most productive and, and satisfying classes I taught were working uh, groups uh, where we had projects and, you know, and then people uh, came together to, you know, to uh, talk about the ground rules and then they would go out and do things and then come back and then we, you know, work together. Uh, and, and that was the most satisfying of all the teaching I did. Uh, I, I've taught uh, 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 mostly, you know, university ones, but my classes ranged, from, you know, up to 350 students, uh, and those couldn't be project uh, classes. Uh, but even there, uh, I did try to do, you know, smaller groups within them and even, you know, self-grading uh, uh, or group grading uh, there. Uh, so, no, th there are a lot of things that have to be considered uh, when you want to, you know, change around space or 
change around people. Uh, but, uh, they, you know, they all can be managed. One thing that you, um, in personal space, in Chapter 7, uh, in the, cha the, the chapter called Design for Learning, yeah. I was just blown away because within two pages you quote Skinner, who calls for more attention paid to cognitive processing. And then on the next page you quote uh, Maria Montessori, who likens children to, in traditional schools to quote, butterflies mounted on pins, fastened yeah. each to his desk, spreading useless wings of bearing and meaningless knowledge they have acquired. To me, I've always thought about these two people as having very different perspectives. One interested in environment, only as inputs into the black box, and the other more aligned with Dewey, in which knowledge is something that is not to be kept in the head, to, to be applied in one's environment. Um, I feel like you're approaching design from many different angles. Um, is this Husserl's phenomenology that you're drawing from, uh, or you know, where we're more interconnected to the senses in our surroundings, or are you looking more at, at processed patterns and learned responses from our environment. Um, how, how do you think about that? I, I incorporate all of those. Uh, Skinner had, you know, good ideas. Maria Montessori had good ideas. And, and I want to borrow from wherever I can. Uh, and, uh, uh, but I, I didn't like Skinner's black box, uh, but I uh, did like it. But I did like his idea of reinforcement, uh, that uh, if you want to change behavior, you change the reward structure uh, in that system. Uh, and uh, say with, same with Maria Montessori's. Uh, my kids, I never had, they never went to a Montessori school. Uh, they went to regular public schools like, you know, like everyone else uh, in my you know, uh, uh, social circle. Uh, and uh, so, no, I, uh, I uh, you know, I, I, I'm an eclectic in terms of taking ideas from wherever they are uh, without sort of ideological uh, uh, attachment uh, uh, there. So, um, uh, no, the, this, you know, this part of our discussion is really interesting considering what is going on at the, in, in the United States, the national, international levels with uh, our, our, you know, who, our, who, who shall be nameless uh, there. No, who's not, whose name shall not be named. This is like, yeah. I believe it's a Harry Potter, the, the right. antagonist yeah. of Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, no, I, I feel that uh, I'd like to see much more experimentation uh, with ref followed by reflection and then, you know, sharing uh, what's been learned with a larger audience. And, and that's really the basis of action uh, research. Uh, I mean, what we did with the soft classroom, uh, I, I keep you know, coming back to that, uh, we took regular, you know, really, you know, uh, uh, horrid uh, classrooms. Uh, this was, you know, I, I showed you the gorilla effort we did when we, you know, put in plants and, and we found that they were positively received. And then we used that information uh, there. And so then we took uh, a you know, one of the usual, this is the way that all the classrooms were. Uh, and uh, this is the room where we uh, did research for over. Uh, can, you, can you hold this up uh, quite high? Yeah. This is the room that we did research for over 30 years. Uh, and it's still a uh, classroom on our campus. Uh, but this is the way it looked before we did our, you know, intervention. Uh, and so we, uh, uh, this, was, this was an interesting room because when we interviewed people about it, the, before, it before we intervened, uh, that it was a few of them referred to it as a windowless room. 
as a windowless room. Uh, and we said, no, no, there were windows there. But what happened was when students were sitting in their seats and they looked out, there were louvers that came down and you couldn't see outside. Uh, and that's, you know, there. And so we uh, changed around the room uh, and uh, uh, this was the first uh, way we changed it. Uh, and here's a, here are students meeting in this room uh, and uh, the, it, the, the, you could sit at several levels and we, uh, for the first time, had uh, a lot of student-student interaction which we never had uh, the way the, you know, the way the room was when I showed you at first before, you know, before we intervened. Uh, and then later, uh, the design that we had picked, uh, the colors were considered uh, sort of, uh, students referred to those 1970s color, like avocado green and orange and uh, uh, they didn't like them, and so we got some more uh, money uh, from the administration and were able, uh, 30 years later, to change around the room again, and we used postmodern uh, colors uh, and designs. Uh, and we demonstrated that there was more interaction uh, in the room uh, and and that students liked the room better than uh, the kind of 25 control rooms that we used in comparison. Uh, and so this is... This is kind of regardless of where a teacher's pedagogy is or their awareness of this. Yes. This or, or, or subject matter. Room itself. Yeah. Yeah. Or subject matter. There were, there were two variables that we wanted to influence uh, in our work. One was the aesthetics that, that uh, when we started, every single room on our campus was regarded uh, as ugly and institutional. Every one, there wasn't one that on a scale of ugly, beautiful was, was on the beautiful end of it, you know, above the, med the uh, midpoint. Uh, and we also wanted to influence participation. Uh, because there wasn't much of it. Uh, and we were able to demonstrate that both of those changed for the better. Uh, and this is over a 30-year period. Uh, and uh, we've been evaluating it ever since. Uh, and this is the kind of, you know, self-consciousness uh, that the instructors, you know, who uh, then were able to request that room uh, you know, uh, we're, we're fully, we're fully aware of. Uh, so no, that's the, the notion of action research where you, where the, you change things around, but you try to learn something from it. You just don't change them around, uh, for the sake of, of change. Yeah. And this, you do talk about it in your article as well, where you talk about, um, the situation is somewhat better in rooms where teachers allow students freedom of space to arrange their tables and chairs as they please, but this is only impossible in rooms where movable furniture and with movable furniture and congenial custodians. Um, the teachers face with the low level of environmental confidence possessed by the students. And then you say that design education is sadly lacking in most schools, and there's no recognition of the connection between design and behavior. Now, um, I've been following the movements of design thinking in education over the last few years, and um, usually a big part of that is redesign of the classroom space uh, with student involvement. In, in going back to personal space in Chapter 7, Design for Learning, you cite Howard Rolf studies of pedagogies between small and large teaching spaces. And uh, this was fascinating to me because it seemed like it was something that was published last week. He says, the teachers appreciated their classrooms as comfortable, inspirational places. These are the big classrooms that made them feel that there was no limit to what they could do if they decided. There were large and small group work for dancing, for project work. All these were possible. People's desks were easy to move. 
to clear space for activities and for group work. But the large classroom had not changed their teaching methods, as they all said. Um, so when you talk about this need for design education, I feel like you're talking about this need for an approach to education as a designer. Is, is that kind of how you're thinking about it? That um, students need to have, I guess, what the Kelly, David Kelly calls creative confidence, uh, the ability to uh, manipulate environment, building, uh, make a change in their environment and, and notice like how that's affecting their, their own agency. Yeah. Once students have been involved in these kind of change uh, experiments and then talked about them later, they become much more amenable to further experiments. So on that note of approaching uh, behavior and I guess life as a designer, because at some point I feel like it, it's inseparable from, you know, uh, as you mentioned in your book, this Welt, I'm not even sure I'm saying it right, Welt Anschung, your, your world outlook. Uh, Welt Anschauung. <laughs> Welt Anschauung. It's been quite a few years since German studies, so yeah. my pronunciation. So give me just a moment, because I want to throw a couple of things up here for us to consider, or for you to consider, um, about, can you see that? And then let me change it around. Hopefully your screen just got taken over by, by a document. And I'm going to scroll down here for the viewers here. This is how I kind of plan cutting and pasting research and then looking at his uh, um, different work here. Can, can you see this here? Yeah. Okay. So um, as I was kind of looking through your website of all the different areas that you work, and you mentioned that you're an eclectic thinker and that you pull from all different facets. And, um, you know, this is very, um, this kind of divergent outlook on the world is very modern in the, the way people are, are, they're making good use of their online time is, um, you know, Twitter and things like that are just incredible resources for divergent thinking, for collecting a lot of different viewpoints. And people, I think, are becoming less uh, filtered in the way that they kind of, where they pull from. I know that when I'm even thinking about education, I'm, I'm pulling from multiple resources. So uh, you've published a book here on um, on mushrooms and fungus of uh, the Pacific Northwest, and you've taken trips to, to Mexico. You've um, published um, recipes here on, on how to prepare these for food. Um, this is just a, one sample of um, the, all of these enlarged into giant watercolor paintings. Um, as you kind of go through life with all these different interests, is this how you kind of get your liberal arts viewpoint or Weltanschung of the world? Uh, could you comment on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I uh, believe. Uh, believe oh, oh, some, 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 the, the, uh, you, I, you I, I, the image will stay up there, but but you just keep talking. Okay. Uh, I combine my different ways of relating to the world. Like I did research on farmers markets uh, and did the, the, the kind of developmental research for farmers markets in California uh, in the 1970s. And this has proved to be very successful uh, there. But I not only did research, but I shopped in the markets, uh, cooked with you know, uh, uh, with with the veggies that I bought there. Uh, and then I wrote articles and then even a trade book on farmer's markets. Uh, same thing with mushrooms. Uh, I, not I, I not only hunt mushrooms, uh, there's, there's going to be a rainstorm here uh, tonight, uh, and I'll probably go out in the next couple of days because the mushrooms depend a lot on, on uh, rain. They're, they're 90 some 98 percent water. Uh, and uh, I, I paint mushrooms uh, uh, that uh, 600 of my mushroom paintings uh, are online with the Mycological Society uh, of California of, of San Francisco. Uh, and uh, I, I like to eat mushrooms, not not all, obviously, but, uh, you know, a lot of them. So uh, your interests will, my interests blur. Uh, uh, I uh, ride a bicycle uh, 
about 10 times more than I ever, you know, drive a car. Uh, I write about bicycling. Uh, I uh, have gotten awards uh, from bicycle uh, groups. Uh, and I'm on the uh, bicycle committee uh, that, for this, for the you know, that works on city and, and campus issues, uh, and so uh, this is the way it all hangs together, uh, and uh, uh, that expressing oneself visually is is very very useful, uh, and uh, there's some things that are better expressed visually uh, than verbally. And for those things, uh, obviously, uh, you require skill. And then people will say to me, uh, well, I don't know how to draw. Well, then I, I sort of take a, another, I wear another hat uh, of trying to be kind of a, a, an art teacher. And, and I tell them uh, that, all, that the main thing in, in drawing and improving your drawing is to draw, draw, and draw, and don't show it to anyone. Uh, just, uh, you know, keep on doing it, and you'll find out how much better your drawings become. Uh, and in time, you will be able to show people your drawings. Uh, with, with the mushrooms, uh, we started, my wife and I started drawing the mushrooms uh, because we were trying to identify them, and uh, there were a lot that we found that, that, you know, that we couldn't identify in the field, so we would sketch them and bring them to mushroom group meetings, uh, and uh, eventually it became kind of a, pro a project in itself, that we enjoyed the drawing of mushrooms so much uh, that we just looked forward uh, to finding new species uh, that we could draw. So, uh, but this is, this is the way, you know, that, that interests kind of blur uh, and that the skills you develop with one uh, kind of uh, activity, you know, go into another. With the uh, classroom design, uh, we uh, got so that we were sort of, uh, teaching people that they could walk past a classroom and look in and see a lot about the dynamics uh, of the room just by how the teacher and the students uh, were uh, arranged, uh, how their nonverbal communication, their postures and gestures. Uh, and uh, that could be done, you know, without hearing a single thing that's going on in the room. Uh, so that was an act, you know, that was another uh, kind of road in uh, uh, here. So, you know, let me see if there are things that I haven't, uh, uh, the, uh, well, yeah. the, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't, when I looked up on, on Wikipedia to kind of find out more about where this idea of environmental psychology comes from, um, I saw that you had, uh, were inspired by Dr. Humphrey Osmond. Yes, uh, who I believe is the person who termed, or says it in Wikipedia, he's the person who coined the term psychedelic. Yes, um, he turned on Aldous Huxley, uh, in who wrote the book *The Doors of Perception*, uh, and uh, they that the, up to then that the psychedelics had only been known uh, for their sort of negative effects, their kind of psychotomimetic, miming a psychosis was the, was the term. And they, they start, when they were working with these substances, they found that many people had positive experiences. So they needed a term and uh, psychedelic came from the island of Delos where the Delphic Oracle hung out uh, and people would come there and have visions. Uh, oh my. Yeah. Yeah. No, Humphrey was was well, my mentor. And what you were just talking about is this kind of uh, interdisciplinary or, or, or integrated thinking, um, which comes up a lot in, in the talk about design thinking as well, especially when you talk about collaboration, this idea of the radical collaboration of getting people in, in a group to work together that have vastly different experiences or outlooks. Um, 
And then, you know, I definitely noticed this in your book that you're, you're in personal space, that you're drawing from several different disciplines at the same time. And even environmental psychology, uh, I think you, you identify it as a sub-discipline of psychology and social psychology, that, that it's pulling from all of these different areas. As I was looking through, uh, let me throw one more image up here. Um, give me just a second here. Okay, I think that should have come back up. Um, as I was looking through your drawings, uh, this one came to mind. I, I believe this is uh, from your trip to Portugal. Yes. I, was, um, I, I definitely saw that in your drawings, you, you're capturing uh, incredible detail in the, in the architectural elements. Um, and I was wondering if you were also you know, watching the humor interaction within those spaces. Is that a big part of it as well? Yeah, well, when you're sketching, uh, you know, one thing you have to look for is a good place to sit, you know, to sit or to observe. Uh, that when we were in uh, 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 China, it was very difficult to find uh, spaces uh, where you could, you know, uh, sketch. Uh, and it was very strange in China that whenever we tried to sketch something, people would come up uh, and see what we were doing and, and sometimes would stand in the way between us and what we were sketching. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the kind of the way you relate to the environment, in this case, you know, sketching, um, uh, has a lot, there, there are a lot of constraints there. Uh, and uh, especially if you're going to, you know, if it's going to rain, uh, and like in Ireland, uh, when we sketched there, uh, there were all these, I remember uh, in Kerry, we were attacked by these bugs that they were called no see uh, And I ended up, you know, crushing uh, bugs uh, that were on the painting, uh, and uh, now people see those kind of uh, black spots as birds in the air. Uh, and uh, so, no, I, you know, I, I encourage people to develop hobbies. Uh, you know, uh, now uh, being uh, retired and, and no longer. Uh, teaching and, and and I miss it a lot. Uh, it provided a structure for me that I that I don't have anymore now. Sort of one day is is, is like any other, uh, but when you have hobbies like in this case mushrooming, uh, uh, you can you know uh, practice those and you have much more time for them. Uh, that uh, uh, you know like. Uh, there's, you you wonder what the point is of getting out of bed in the morning uh, if there's nothing to do. Uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to tonight's rain uh, for what it will bring up uh, in the field. Well, and I think you've sort of talked around that that idea of the importance of the the liberal arts education of um, of not just being trapped within one discipline. Um, I came from a family where we were really pushed to develop in all kinds of areas. You know, there had to be an artistic practice. There had to be a musical instrument practice. Sports were really, you know, a big part of it. And everyone has continued in those fields, you know, into their, you know, mid middle ages. Uh, all my brothers continue to do all of these different things. In fact, and sometimes they seem much more integral as far as your identity and your interpretation of the world than maybe your specialization in, in, in your job area. Um, so, you know, prime, elementary education has always been an area where I've said some of the best teachers are those that have come from other professions or have come out of a liberal arts background where they've had training across different disciplines so that when they get in that classroom and have to teach science or social studies or reading, they can start bridging and thinking symbolically across different forms a lot more easily than those that are just trapped into the uh, teach with text produce text, you know, you know, to be able to kind of pull kids between those different environments. Um, this has been overwhelming. I, I have plenty to research, you know, just from this discussion. I asked you this question right before we got on, and I'll ask it to you again for the audience. Um, 
Personal Space was an incredible read. I have the 1969 version. You really recommended picking up the 2006 version where you add on. There's addendums yeah. to every chapter, uh, kind of refreshing your thoughts on, on these areas. You, you have the, the more recent one there. Um, what else? I, I know you've written a book on street art. I know you've written other books on interaction of space. For those that want to delve more deeply into this, uh, what would you recommend next? Well, they could always look at a textbook and you know titled environmental psychology uh there are now you know at least a dozen of them you know around and uh as i said my interests now have changed you know have turned a lot uh, into uh mushrooms and uh art uh so but but you know uh in fact uh, you can do a library search on personal space uh, and come up with a lot of new experiments that people have done. Well, um, I'm looking forward to investigating further. This has been uh, very eye-opening, the reading of the book, especially to anyone interested in this topic. Um, I, I, I found it just as a classroom teacher, it just had endless, every chapter had things to investigate and explore. Thank you very much for taking the time today. I hope we didn't, I didn't hit you with too many different uh, requests, or I tend to get very long-winded. Uh, no, Around a couple minutes afterwards, uh, we'll, we'll end the broadcast. Sure. Okay, I'll be around. Two in the morning, bro, there's nothing I'm gonna do. A fool never know the reasons he may come back.